All right, Romans chapter 8, at least have it there. Romans chapter 8. We're not going to do much review here. Romans chapter 8. All right. We're going to jump right in because we're going to see if we can come close to finishing this section. So let's just remind ourselves. In Romans chapter 8, there are a number of words there that I believe every Christian should know. I'm not going to go back and review all of those words because we've been reviewing them every week. So they're right there in Romans chapter 8. All of the words have something to do ultimately with doctrines with ideas that are deemed extremely controversial by a lot of people and can lead to actual church splits. Because these words deal ultimately with the sovereignty of God, God's providence, God's divine decrees, the doctrine of election and predestination. And you bring all of that together, major problems arise. I think, the pro- I think before you get to the six words, the text in Romans 8 already presents problems by telling us that God subjected all of creation to vanity, not according to the will of creation or the creature. He did so, but he did so in hope, and that he works all things together for good, which all ultimately demonstrates that God is working in and through everything to accomplish his purpose, and even subjecting everything to vanity, he did it in hope because he had a purpose in it. You bring all of that together, Lots of major issues, much, lots, of, lots of major doctrines. So, here's what we, what we decided to do is we started working on the doctrine of providence utilizing uh, Grudem's systematic theology. We have reached the point in his discussion over all of this about the subject of evil. If God works all things out to his good pleasure, his will, if he works everything out for that, well, then how do we understand evil and God's sovereignty? What do we do with it? How do we understand it? So we started looking at it and for a number of, uh, we looked at a lot of scriptures, right? We looked at it in regards to the story of Joseph. Yes? All right. Jo- bad things happened to Joseph. No one can deny it. But somehow Joseph realized that who was involved in the entire situation? God did it. God led it, directed it, guided it. Now, does that excuse what his brothers did and everyone else? No, but God was still working in and through it. And he could have gotten Joseph there a hundred other, uh, other ways. And not only that, by setting it up that way, by putting Joseph in Egypt, he, brings every, he leads everyone ultimately to Egypt, which is ultimately going to be where they are going to suffer captivity and slavery for over 400 years, which is exactly what was prophesied earlier, so still demonstrate God working in and through everything. It raises some very difficult questions, but they're there, all right? Then, last week, instead of working on Joseph, who did we look at? The story of Pharaoh. What did we find in Scripture over and over and over and over? God promised that he was going to harden his heart. He hardened his heart over and over and over. We do have a scripture where Pharaoh hardened his heart, but ultimately God knew that it was going to happen anyway because God is the one who said it was going to happen. So he hardened his heart. We see God working in and through everything for his purpose. Again, he could have had Pharaoh let the people go. How long? Like immediately, but he did not for his purpose to glorify and to accomplish something, right? And then we see, from that story, because I don't want to go back all, all the way through everything that takes place there. If we go to, uh, where is it? Um, how far do we want to go? Um, 
Yeah, I, I, I don't want to go back. Go to Exodus, uh, let's see. Go to Romans 9. Let's do that. Go to Romans 9, just because this kind of summarizes everything about it. Go to Romans 9. Romans 9, everybody there? All right. Now, I won't go back and get the context here, but Romans 9.15, For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy in whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion in whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Now that... That is a staggering verse because he's saying, I raised Pharaoh up for what purpose? His purpose so that he could magnify himself in Pharaoh. Pharaoh's actions by hardening his heart was to be stubborn, rebellious, and then God poured out all of that upon him so that God could be glorified. Hard concept to wrap our minds around. It raises all kinds of questions. Now, there's some other scriptures we can look at in regards to David and a lot of other issues. But let's just jump down, because there are a lot of scriptures here we can look at. For time's sake, because I really want to get us to some uh, important points here, go to the book of Acts. The book of Acts, chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, and y'all know this verse, or you should know this verse. Acts chapter 2, all right, Um, yes, Acts chapter 2, let's go to verse 22. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. You men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as you yourselves also know. Him, speaking of Christ, being delivered by the... Everybody say it. The determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Why was Christ delivered up? To God's what? His determinate counsel and foreknowledge. Okay? Or his set purpose, right? So in other words, he was delivered up for God's purpose. Everybody see that? When everyone doesn't look at this verse. Delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. What do we have true in one verse? Man's actions and God's sovereignty. God delivered him up. It was predetermined for him to be delivered up. It was predetermined for him to be crucified. Yet, wicked men took him and did the action. Are the wicked men still declared to be wicked? Yes. Yet, at the same time, God's sovereignty overrides and rules throughout the entire situation. Very hard concept to to put these two together. But we see it played out time and time in Scripture. Over and over and over in Scripture. I can go through it over and over. Right, yeah, yeah. yeah. In other words, it doesn't matter what you want to do. You can't do anything because God hasn't determined the time. But when God determined the time, it was going to happen. But yet the people are still responsible. It's hard to wrap our mind around it. So, here's what we're going to do. 
We're going to take the, I don't, I, don't, I don't know if we can get through all of these, but we're going to take the time this morning to try to see what we, how we can process this in this way, all right? We're going to try to understand about, after we look at all of these verses relating to God and evil, we didn't even look at half of them, but, we're, but after we look at all of these verses relating to God and evil, we need to somehow an, analyze what we can take from this. So, let's state it this way. What can we take from all of the verses that speak of God's sovereignty and man's action and how do we reconcile the two and can we truly and fully understand it? That's what we're going to work on doing. We're going to use Grudem here and then I will ver- deviate whenever I feel necessary. All right, everybody ready? Here's number one. God uses all things to fulfill his purpose even uses evil for his glory and for our good. I I want to to write that down. God uses what? All things to fulfill his purpose. He even uses what? Evil for his glory and for our good. God uses all things to fulfill his purpose, even uses evil for his glory and for our good. Now again, that sounds wonderful maybe sitting in a church on a Sunday where you don't really think about the practical implications, but the practical implications there are very difficult to wrap your mind around. Correct? Why does he have to use evil for his glory and our good? Why? Why can't we, we just avoid that? We may not even understand. Grudem put it this way. When evil comes into our lives to trouble us, we can, have from, we can have from the doctrine of providence a deep assurance that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. But remember, those all things can be suffering, pain, and evil. Right? This kind of conviction enabled Joseph to say to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. All right? We can also realize that God is glorified even in the punishment of evil. Scripture tells us that the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. That's a a troubling passage. Similarly, the psalmist affirms, surely the wrath of men shall praise you. Psalm 76.10. And the example of Pharaoh is a, a, a clear example of the way God uses evil for his own glory and for the good of his people. God uses all things to fulfill his purpose, even uses evil for his glory and for our good. Right? Everybody got that? So, let's state it again. What do we learn here from the first analysis, our first point? God uses what? All things. Fulfill his purpose, even evil, his glory and our good. Now, what, what should be the practical implications that derives from that truth? Think of it this way. What we see does not reveal the whole reality. We just see the tragedy, we see the evil, we see the pain, we see the suffering. We cannot see beyond that, can we? Right? Because, again, think of it, I, I have to continue to go back to the book of Job. Job is never given that insight, is he? No. You are never given that insight. Because we never see that insight that we have to then by faith realize. Now again, this requires faith because faith is beyond what we see, correct? And that the whole concept of faith? 
Walk by faith and not by sight, right? By, by sight, I see pain, suffering, and I'm like, this is garbage. I don't like it. I don't want it. God, why are you doing all of this? But by faith, I know that God is using all things for his glory and ultimately my good. Who, who defines the good? God, not us. It's not according to your understanding of good, but God's understanding of good. Even evil. Now, that doesn't excuse it. Now, this is where it gets problematic. If he uses all things, even evil, does that not include your own sin and your own failure? It would. Does that excuse your sin and evil? No. Right? It, does, it doesn't excuse it. I'm not saying that we say, oh, well, you know what? You fell into sin. It's all according to God's plan. Don't worry about it. I'm not saying that. But we ask the to realize that in most cases, even when we sin, God could have stepped in and probably have stopped it relatively easy. Yes? Did he, did he, stop, uh, did he not stop uh, something really bad happening to Abram's wife, Sarah? Right? He stepped in and stopped it, right? Did he have to step in and stop that from happening? He could have he could allowed everything to go the way it was going to go. He did not. He stepped in. Sometimes he steps in. Did he step in and stop David? No. Now, why does he step in in one situation, doesn't step in another situation? That is the most frustrating thing in the world. Right? Because we nobody here, hopefully nobody here wants to sin. Now, I know in some cases you may, well, let's take it back. Our heart wants to sin. Let's take that back. To be fair, our depravity wants to sin. But there's another part of us as Christians, we don't want to sin. Remember the things we want to do, we don't do, and the things we, but God doesn't always step in and go, okay, 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 look, 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 I know you don't really want to do that. Let me just step in and help you out right here. Doesn't always do that. Sometimes it's almost like God is just standing there going, okay, well, go ahead. Right, well, David, I mean, where? Nobody could, nobody could help out that situation with David? Nobody? I mean, he was going to have the prophet show up later to confront him. Couldn't he have the prophet show up that night? <laughs> right? Couldn't he have the hey, don't go out on the roof tonight. Don't. Right? I mean, there could have been a million things. So it's frustrating. Now, am I excusing David's sin? No, I am not excusing. Please hear, you've got to make sure you hear what I'm saying. I'm not excusing it. But somehow, in all of it, God was working ultimately what? His purpose. And think about it. Could it possibly have been even working Somehow in and through that, he works good for David. I, I, I don't know how we. I don't. I don't know how we process that, right? I mean, and then and then you look at that story. Isn't it crazy? David commits the act, and who dies? Well, Uriah dies, but the baby dies. Yeah. Well, wait a minute. Why didn't David die? Committed murder, right? And doesn't the Bible teach the idea that if you shed man's blood? Moses killed someone. Did Moses die? Ain't it, ain't it weird how that works, right? In some situation, people commit it. They're like, they need to be punished. Like, always remember this because Christians do this a lot of times. When it comes to say, it can be, well, this happens a lot of times with the sin of homosexuality. Christians will yell, because of homosexuality, they deserve to be put to death. Okay, well, slow down, because there's situations in the Bible where someone deserved to be put to death and God didn't do what? 
So it's always hard to wrap your mind around these concepts, but it's just an important concept. So again, what is the concept? Let's state it again. God uses how many things? All things. I wanted to stress that word, all things. To do what? His purpose. And what else does he use? Evil. For his glory and for our good. Now, the question is, again, I guess the question you have to ask yourself Right? I'm gonna, I, want you to, I, want you to ask your, I want you to write this question down. What do you desire most? God's glory and your spiritual good or comfort, peace, and tranquility in your life? What do you desire the most? Now, if we desire... God's glory and spiritual good the most, then we were willing to accept whatever God brings into, okay, God, you bring into my life. It's pain, it's suffering. Okay, your glory, bring about the spiritual good. I'm all for it. But in reality, what do we seem to desire far more than those things? We desire everything other than that. I, I gave the illustration, uh, I did two podcast episodes this, uh, this week. Well, I, I don't even know what week. They all run together. Um, Dealing with the idea, can spiritual good come from physical sickness? Can spiritual good be gained from physical pain? And I believe scripture seems to indicate that spiritual good can come from physical pain, but we have a tendency to say, no, 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 no. This is bad. Make it go away. And saying, saying, Lord, no, keep it here until the spiritual good and your glory is achieved. But as Christians, we don't necessarily want spiritual benefit. We want everything else. I'll give you an example, all right? Um, on whenever, a lot of times I'll come out here really early in the morning, and as I get in the car to start driving this direction, I drive past a CrossFit gym there on the right-hand side of the freeway. It may be 5 in the morning, 6 in the morning, 7 in the morning, and guess what I find uh, at the CrossFit gym? Parking lot Packed. In there working and sweating. And what are they doing that for? To obtain physical benefit. I go just a little down, further down the road, and guess what's on the left-hand side of the freeway? A church. And guess what's always going on in the parking lot at the church? Nothing. It's empty. There's no one there. You know why there's no one there? Because people are much more willing to get up and go to a gym at 5 or 6 in the morning. No one's going to get up and go to a church at 5 or 6 in the morning to study the Bible. Now Christians will say, no, 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 no. The things of God are more important to me. Give me a break. Their gyms open, how many hours? Some gyms are open 24-7. You ever seen a church open 24-7? No. We have enough problems getting people to show up to church for three services. Right? But oh, the gym, it's packed. Why? What do we desire? What do we desire more? We desire our own personal benefit. People are willing to sweat, work out, pay a gym membership for that physical benefit, for looks, for health. But when it comes to people's spiritual good, you can't get them to wake up. You can't get them to go to church. They make 900 excuses. Oh, I'm tired. I'm too busy. I can't do this. I can't do that. What do you, ex- you want me to read a whole Bible in a year? You're cra- You want me to do a devotional? What? No. 
So guess what? If we think that way in everyday life, then how are we going to handle it when it comes to pain and suffering? We're going to like, what do we want God to do with pain and suffering? Take it away? Not just take it away. We want him to launch a preemptive strike to keep it away. We don't say, Lord, pain, suffering, if it's for my spiritual good and your glory, bring it on. Back the truck up and dump it out. I, I don't hear that. Is that is a, common, a common prayer you pray every day? Lord, bring that U-Haul full of suffering and dump it at my doorstep. I'm willing to endure it for your glory and for my spiritual good. No, we want the U-Haul truck to, to go off the road and explode in flames before it gets to my house. In fact, it can stop at my neighbor's house and we're, still, we're pretty okay with that. This point is of no value if you do not... Listen, you can sit there and go, well, my theology tells me that suffering... God works all things for His glory. He even uses evil for His glory and my good. Okay, I know that's wonderful to think theologically, but it doesn't mean anything if you don't desire the spiritual good. If you don't desire the spiritual good, what will happen when God brings that to your life? You're going to get bitter. You're going to get angry. You're going to get despondent. You're going to get discouraged. You're going to get mad. You're going to get depressed. You're going to be like, what's the point? I'm serving God and this is the best I get. Maybe that you are getting the best. You're getting what's best for your spiritual growth. All right, number two. God uses all things to fulfill his purpose, even uses evil for his glory and for our good. Number two. Nevertheless, God never does evil and, ne- and is never to be blamed for evil. God never does evil and is never to be blamed for evil. Now, how we reconcile this is hard, 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 okay? Um, I'm going to read from Grudem here so that we can get where he goes with this. And a statement similar to those cited above from Acts 2.23 and 4.27-28, Jesus also combines God's predestination of the crucifixion with moral blame on those who carry it out. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Luke twenty two twenty two, Matthew twenty six twenty four, and Mark fourteen twenty one. Let me read that again. The Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. It had been determined beforehand that he would be what? Betrayed. He was going to walk into that, but who gets blamed for doing it? Judas. But what ultimately led Judas to doing it? Satan entered into him. So in a sense, Judas is responsible, Satan is responsible, who's supposedly not responsible? God. But who determined that it would happen? How do we write that? Does, that? does that not hurt your brain? That hurts my brain a lot. It really, it really, really does, all right? Um, he goes on to say, and in a more general statement about evil in the world, Jesus says, Woe to the world for temptation to sin, for it is necessary that temptation come, but woe to the man by whom the temptation comes. <laughs> That's Matthew 18, 7. That's a mouthful, is it not? Woe to the world for temptation to sin, For it is necessary that temptation come, but woe to the man by whom the temptation comes. 
See how it's got that both concepts going on there? I, I, I wish I had a good answer, but I, I don't have a good answer. Jesus uh, speaks similarly in warning to us not to blame God for the evil we do when he says, let no one who says when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. James chapter 1, verses 13 through 14. The verse does not say that God never causes evil. It affirms that we should never think of him as the personal agent who is tempting us or who is to be held accountable for the temptation. We can never blame God for temptation or think that he will approve us if we give in to it. We are to resist evil and always blame ourselves or others who tempt us, but we must never blame God. That's hard to understand. God doesn't tempt me for evil. He just didn't do what? He didn't keep it from me. He didn't keep it. He didn't, he didn't do anything to protect me. That is troubling, is it not? Now, the only way I can reconcile this, now listen, i got to be very careful how I say this, the only way in my brain I can reconcile it is God in many cases doesn't step in, and one of the reasons is somehow that sin and that evil is a part of his plan. Now, I'm not saying it excuses it, but there's no other way to get around it. He can stop it whenever he wants to stop it. And that fact that he doesn't, in fact, sometimes it almost like he creates the perfect, it almost like the perfect storm creates the situation where it all comes together. It's like one little, one little deviation could have avoided it. One, one little, one little deviation and it's like everything comes together and then boom, there's the sin, there's the pain, there's the shame, everyone yells, everyone accuses, but somehow nobody stops to go, wait a minute, God's got to be working in and through this. He has to have a purpose in this. What's his purpose in it? Well, we know to glorify and ultimately for good, and it's got to be a spiritual good. But God is not to be blamed. I, it's, I, man, it's so hard to understand how to work this. Go to Isaiah 45, 7, because this is a very troubling verse. Look at Isaiah 45, 7 and see if, you, if your brain explodes when you read this. Isaiah 45, 7. Everybody there? Everybody reading it? I'm going to give you a chance to read it on your own before I even quote it. Does every translation say it the same way? Okay. Everybody there? Isaiah 45, 7. I form the light, the speaking of God. And create darkness, I make peace. Okay, and create disaster. Okay, yeah, guess how the King James renders it? Creates evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. What in the world do we do with that? What do we do with that? Remember, God never does evil and is never to be blamed for evil, but what do we do with Isaiah 45, 7? The, the best we can come up with, according to Grudem, is this. Even a verse such as Isaiah 45, 7, which speaks of God creating evil, does not say that God himself does evil, but should be understood to mean that God ordained the evil would come about through the willing choices of his creatures. All right? So, he, in a sense, God creates evil. In a sense, he creates, he creates the situation where evil would arise. I mean, he created Satan, correct? All right? So, 
again, I think it's, I, I know this sounds heretical, somehow sin and evil is a part of God's plan, and to say that it's not, it's hard to get around, right? I mean, when he created everything, did he know, I mean, he created the entire situation in which evil would arise. So, we have, we have to understand it from that perspective. Again, what can we not do? We don't understand that God, we don't believe that God does evil, and who is never to be blamed for evil? God is to never be blamed for it. I know it's hard to wrap my mind around, but that's, that's the way we have to understand this. Now listen, are you ready for this? You can put this in quotations. These verses all make clear that, in quotes, secondary causes, secondary causes, human beings, angels, and demons are real, and that human beings do cause evil and are responsible for it. Though God ordained that it would come about, both in general term and in specific details, yet God is removed from actually doing evil and is bringing it about through secondary causes, does not impugn his holiness or render him blameworthy in any way. It's called secondary causes. So here's God. What's his plan? Evil and sin somehow to be a part of the plan. It has to be a part of it in some way, shape, or form, right? Because if it's not a part of the plan, then what happens? Something happened that God did not ultimately control or ordained, right? That would make God less than God. But how does he then, how can this be a part of his plan without his holiness being impugned? The, the answer is supposedly secondary causes, right? Where Adam and Eve, did they have free will? Yeah, obviously they had free will, Right? So, he allowed, did he know what choice they were going to make? Did he create the entire situation in which they would be tempted? But who did the act? Adam and Eve. Did he know Satan was going to rebel? But who chose to... Did Satan have free will? Obviously, he would have had free will, right? Okay? And when I say free will, free will in this sense to make this choice to do wrong, right? They didn't, in other words, didn't possess a sinful nature. I'm saying free from a sinful nature. Adam and Eve didn't have a sinful nature at the time of the fall. Neither did Satan. But uh, they chose to do so. So in a sense, God ordains it, but God is not the one directly responsible for it using this concept of secondary choices. John Calvin states it this way. Thieves and murderers and other evildoers are the instruments of divine providence. Everybody hear that again? Thieves and murderers and other evildoers are the instruments of divine providence. I don't like that. Does anybody else like that? Okay, we can all be honest, right? Let's not pretend. The Lord himself uses those to carry out the judgment that he has determined with himself, yet I deny that they can derive from, from this any excuse, or that I deny that anything can be derived from this to excuse someone's evil deeds. Why? Will they either, why? Will they either involve God in the same iniquity with themselves, or they will cloak their own depravity with his justice? They can do neither. Bottom line is like, hey, God uses all of these things in his divine providence, but what can you not do? Blame God or excuse yourself. Can't blame God. And I, I have a hard time with this. I can understand not excuse it. Well, I even have a hard time. I have a hard time both cases because God is so intimately involved in it. I understand that from a theological perspective, I can't blame God, but you cannot get around that. Who's, I mean, ultimately, no matter how, you can bring in all, you can bring in 13 secondary causes. Who does it begin with? God. Who does it end with? 
who works it for his purpose. But somehow he doesn't get the blame. That's hard to... Oh. And I understand why, why... Why do you think it's so important for theologians not to let him get the blame? Why do you think from a theological perspective it's important for God not to get the blame? Well, the main reason is because you begin to destroy the attribute of holiness. Right. So, somehow you can't... You have to try to protect that and it just becomes very, 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 very difficult. But it's something we have to struggle with. All right? Yeah, and just. All right? A little later... uh, In fact, let me stop right here. This is very important. All right. What is the one thing, what, there's one truth that really is so essential to understanding. In other words, okay, we, we live in this world, God utilizes evil, right? Evil and bad things happen. He uses it for his purpose and his glory. We've already seen that in point number one. He is never to be blamed. What is the one truth that somehow adds at least a help in trying to understand how this can all work out and God still remains holy and just? There's one very critical doctrine that if you don't have this right, this all falls apart. Grudem has not mentioned it yet. I will go ahead and throw it in. I want you to think about it. See, if anybody can get this right, there's one doctrine that absolutely, without this, everything we're talking about falls completely apart. If anyone answers this online, let me know, Seth. All right? What? There's one doctrine. Now, I, I can't be any more specific or I'm going to give it away. There's one foundational doctrine. Okay. okay. That, you're going with God's attributes, okay? That, that, that's important here. Still not the foundational doctrine. They, uh, let, me, let me state it this way. Okay, here's God. We all say that he's holy, right? Yes? We say that somehow he ordains evil and bad and horrible things can happen. There's sin. All these things can happen. Somehow God is not to be blamed. Right? No, there's, that, that's, that, there's a doctrine that's so critical here. Let me state it this way. How can God tell Israel to go in and kill every man, woman, girl, child, and animal? Right? There's, still, there's still a doctrine that has to be found. If it's not there, it, it doesn't work. Even if God is just, it doesn't make sense. There's a doctrine. Okay. Starts with a D. Starts with a D. Oh, come on. D-E? Oh, no, I've taught it about 9,000 times. All right, let me state it this way. How can God have everyone killed and he's not guilty? Yes! Depravity! Right? Do you not understand? Look, if we're all depraved sinners, right, and God brings bad thing upon us, then that would always be according to what? Justice! Holiness, right? We all deserve death. We all deserve punishment. Right? Okay, how does everybody miss it? This is like, okay, now I'm scared, okay? Maybe we shouldn't be deserving providence. Maybe we need to go back to depravity, okay? Well, I am thinking of from God's perspective. The reason God can do it is because he looks at a world and what is it filled with? 
Sinners. So then what can he do to those sinners? He can not use their sin. What can he pour out upon them? He can do anything, right? Judge, death, pain, suffering, because we don't deserve anything but that. I know that's an unpleasant thought, but it, look, it's the, look when, you, when you read the story in Genesis 6, that's a horrible story about the flood. We turn it into a nice little story of, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Noah standing on the, on the boat looking at each other with a rainbow over their head singing Kumbaya, but there's nothing pretty about that story. How many people are on the boat? Right? Not very many people, correct? How many people are in the water? Everyone. Including whom? Well, let's just, because this is where people get very upset. Children, babies. I don't like that. Do you like that? No. Why could it happen? Depravity, depravity. I want everyone to keep, everyone write that down. Depravity, depravity, depravity. If we're all depraved, what does everyone deserve? Hell. Thank you. Judgment, right? So he can pour that judgment out in all kinds of ways, correct? So if he tells Israel to go in and kill everyone, that's horrible because atheists will say, so the Bible promotes genocide. Well, it does in that particular case. It's horrific. But why, why can, what's the only theological justification we have for that genocide? It was ordained by God and it was killing people who deserved what? Judgment. The miraculous thing is that he did not do that to Israel. You say, well, he killed all of those other people. Yeah, the most shocking thing is he didn't kill Israel. Now, he had Israel judged over and over and over, but he didn't wipe them off the face of the earth because he made a covenant with them. Why? Because God can have mercy on whom he will have mercy and judgment and him judgment because it's ultimately based off whom? God, not on us. Everyone deserves judgment. So when, when, when there's evil, murder, killing, and all of that happens, well, it can happen on anyone, and we all deserve that. I know we don't think we deserve pain and suffering. I know we don't think we deserve it. It's hard. We, in our minds, we always think we're better than we are, correct? Yes? And then when something, when a big sin happens that's scandalous, then we realize how bad we are. As long as we can keep the sin within the acceptable level, then nobody cares. But we're not as good as we think we are. So, you have a world made up of what? Depraved people. Now, if God's going to stop depravity, what would be required? The removing of all people on the planet. Correct? Alright? So, so either God removes everyone, which he could, or two, he allows that depravity to work it out and he uses it for what? His purpose, go back to point number one. His glory and our good. What kind of good? Spiritual good. Is that good for everyone? No, only for those who are called according to his purpose, those who are saved. For everyone else, what is it? For judgment. Does that make sense? All right. Please, that depravity. Oh, man, if we miss that, everything falls apart. All right. Um. A little later, Calvin, he wrote a chapter with this heading. Are you ready? God so uses the works of the ungodly and so bends their minds to carry out his judgment that he remains pure from every stain. 
God uses evil people to carry out His judgment because the judgment is what? Just. The evil people are doing what? What comes naturally. So God ordains it, He moves it, but they're doing it and they remain guilty of it. And when they do something bad, God is not guilty because the people, being, the people suffering deserve judgment. Oh, that is so hard to comprehend. That's the only way to get around this from a theological perspective. If you don't have the doctrine of depravity, you're done. You're finished. A semi-Pelagian or Pelagian, I, I mean, they have, to, they, have to, they have to go to open theism. That God doesn't know. Because if God knows all of this stuff, ordains all of this, and His providence, you've got to have total depravity absolutely foundational to your teaching. Absolutely. All right? Grudem, I'll pick up now from Grudem. I'm going to try to get one more point here and we'll stop. We should notice that the alternatives to saying that God uses evil for His purpose, but that He never does evil and is not to be blamed for it, are not desirable ones. If we are to say that God himself does evil, we would have to conclude that he is not good and righteous God and therefore that he's not really God at all. On the other hand, if we maintain that God does not use evil to fulfill his purpose, then we have to admit that there is evil in the universe that God did not intend and it is not under his control and might not fulfill his purpose. Both are a problem. Did everybody hear that again? I'll read it one more time. I want everyone to get this. All right? Everybody thinking? All right? We should notice that the alternatives to saying that God uses evil for his purpose, but that he never does evil and is not to be blamed for it, are not desirable alternatives. If we are to say that God himself does evil, what do we conclude? That God is not righteous and he's not God. Everybody got that? Right? So if we say that God does evil, what do we do? We basically destroy God being God. Right? On the other hand, if we say that God does not use evil to fulfill his purpose, then what do we have to admit? That there's evil in the universe that God didn't intend to be there. Right? So he's not, not only he's not all powerful, he doesn't know everything, and that it's not under his control. That destroys his sovereignty. So ultimately, what do you destroy? God from being God. Right? This would make it very difficult for us to affirm that all things work together for good because not all things can work together for good because God would have to be in charge of everything for everything to work together for good. If evil came into the world in spite of the fact that God did not intend it, intend it and did not want it to be there, then what guarantee do we have that there will be any be, uh, be not more evil uh, than, than he does intend and that he does not want? And what guarantees do we have that we'll be able to use it for his purpose, even if they can triumph over it? Surely this is an undesirable alternative position. Bottom line is, if you don't go with the idea that God works everything out, he uses even evil for his good, and that he does not evil and never to be blamed, unless you maintain that, you destroy the concept of God. God doesn't exist. God didn't intend it. Well, if he didn't intend it, well then then why can he do anything about it? If something happened that he didn't intend, then how does he have the power to stop it? He didn't want it, but it happened. It destroys God from being God. Everyone understand that? Are we sure? This is hard stuff, I know. I'll just mention the third point. Here we go. All right, everybody ready? God rightfully blames and judges moral creatures for the evil they do. 
God rightly blames and judges moral creatures for the evil they do. All right, so let's go through the three points. I'm not going to expound on that one. I'll just leave it with you, all right? Here we go. What's point number one? God uses all things to do what? Fulfill His purpose. He even uses what? Evil to do what? For His glory and our good. And what good is that? Our spiritual good. It has to be our spiritual good. All right. Next, God never does evil and is never to be blamed for evil. Number three, God rightfully blames and judges moral creatures for the evil. Stop right there. Those are the three basic points. Now, he, Grudem's got more here. Now, you're, not, you're going to hate the way Grudem ends this section. Okay? Because he's going to end this section by basically saying, there's no way to truly understand this, and there's no way, true, true way to reconcile this. But all the alternatives basically destroys that there isn't God. Because it's almost impossible to reconcile. So, what are some basic applications we can draw from this? What are some applications we can draw from this? What are some applications we can draw from this? Application number one. You have to see the reality you experience through the lens of faith because what you see doesn't tell the whole story. You've got to see reality through the lens of faith. It doesn't tell the whole story. I see pain, suffering, death all around me. It's horrible. I experience, you experience it. I don't like it. It makes me mad. But faith tells me that God has a purpose in and through it and He's working it out for His glory and my spiritual good. I don't understand it. It doesn't make any sense. It's reality. Number two, I have to desire spiritual good above every other desire. If you don't desire spiritual good over everything else, then guess what? You're not, going to, well, you're not going to embrace the pain and the suffering. You're just going to get angry and bitter over it. Now, it doesn't mean you celebrate the evil and the tragedy and the pain, but you just say, Lord, I don't understand this, but use it for your purpose and your glory and bring about the spiritual good that you want. But you have to desire that spiritual good. Here's, my, here's the reality of it. There's too much evidence to prove that we don't desire the spiritual good. Again, I'll use the example. Why is it that churches can't have people show up and to study the Bible, but gyms are filled? Why? Nobody can give me a good explanation. People to go spend money to have a gym membership to go where they can you know, work out and work out and sweat and sweat, almost pass out. Hey, that's great. That's worth it. But, uh, you know, you want me to come back to church? You want me to read my Bible? Then, that, then, all, then the facade is over. The game is up. You don't desire spiritual good. Don't pretend that you do. And if you don't desire spiritual good, I'm t- when pain and suffering comes in your life, guess how you're going to respond to it? Anger, grumbling, and you're going to get mad because you're not going to say, bring it on. You're not going to say, bring it on. I mean, I can use examples from martial arts. If I'm not there to learn the martial art and I really desire it, then who wants someone twisting your arm and hurting you and kicking out your leg and throwing you across the floor and punching you? No, you don't want that. You're going to be like, you know, time out, forget this. I think I'll find a new hobby. 
But if you want to learn it, then guess what? You, drive, you get in your car, you drive to a place that you pay them money so they can punch you inside the face. That seems, counter, that seems pretty stupid, right? But it's not stupid if you want what? The good that derives from it. Does that make sense? So every Christian needs to look at their own life. If you, if you don't desire spiritual good, I mean, this whole, this whole exercise is a waste of time. I can sit there all day and talk about God's providence, and as soon as God's providence shows up, you're like, I don't like it, because I don't really want spiritual good, because I can't, I can't do anything spiritually. I mean, we make every excuse. Isn't it amazing? I mean, Christianity, just I think you become saved, and then well, but when you get up from the altar, they hand you a book and say, here's all the excuses you can make. Tired, that always works. Tired is the good one. That always works. Busy, that always works. Well, then that means you don't desire the spiritual good. And if you don't desire the spiritual good in a tangible way, then how are you going to deal with it when you have to deal with it in a theoretical way? All right? Everybody got those two points? What if point number one? You got to see reality through the lens of faith, right? Number two, you have to desire spiritual good more, more than any other desire. And number three, any alternative to understanding God's providence and evil ultimately destroys the concept of God. Unless you embrace the things that we've tried to articulate, you're going to become an atheist. Even if you're not an atheist in a spoken way, you become an atheist in a practical way because you've destroyed God from being God. God uses evil. And if I say he doesn't, then either evil ended up here and he didn't intend it, or he can't control it. And that's problematic. All right, we'll stop right there. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this morning. There's very important truths. I hope we really give this much thought and discussion. I don't have any easy answers. There's parts of this that makes me at times struggle. There's times I embrace it. It's a never-ending cycle of up and down. But Lord, I pray that we always struggle our best to understand this, that we can understand you and understand how to see the world around us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...